0: Sometimes I want to find something more interesting than good evening to say at the start of a talk. So hello, hello Sangha. (laughs) (laughs) As I was writing this talk, this image kept coming to me. So I figured I would begin the talk with uh, sharing this image with you. And it's the the site of a piece of land where I do a lot of teaching in northern New Mexico. It's a retreat center called Vallecitos. And this place to practice, is, is um, it's an inholding. It's a large inholding in the middle of thousands and thousands of national forest land. So it's wild, and it's remote, and it's quiet in a certain way. We don't have to do a cell phone renunciation ceremony there because there's no reception (laughs) and it's all off the grid this is not an advertisement actually it's really because uh, this place is meaningful to me and has been so impactful in a certain sense in the unfoldment of my own practice and um, yeah everything's off the grid and the building where we meditate, the building where the hall is, you can stand outside that building and look out on this beautiful valley in the summer. There's all this grass and often daisies and different wildflowers. And there's a creek that runs through wonderful fresh water. And there are these two mountains that kind of come together. They're, they're rocky. One, one side is Refugee Ridge and one side is Discovery Point. And the mountains are filled with rocks and all these trees, all these different shades of green, mostly deciduous trees. And when I stand outside that building and look out on that land, I have a feeling of being being enveloped. It's like these two mountains are like the arms of a great grandmother holding, really holding, containing, allowing, uh, all that unfolds in that place. It's like kind of sitting on that land feels like sitting in her heart in a certain sense. And it occurs to me how much, you know, the land is just there. Yogis go through all sorts of stuff. (laughs) Yogis go through ups and downs and you name it. And the land is there. And there's a kind of relaxation and ease we can find when we practice in relationship with place in that way, in relationship with conditions around us in that way, because the land is not on anybody else's timeline. The land doesn't tell the story that things need to be happening faster or that things should be other than they are. And maybe you've had some sense of connectedness or holding from the real nature that surrounds us here. The, The trees, the sound of the leaves crunching underneath your feet, the sunsets, the beauty that comes with change at the end of the day. Or Gaston Pond and just how still It can be sometimes like a quiet mind. So nature can be a real support uh, for our practice. The earth really can be a real support for our practice. And tonight I'm speaking about the quality of patience. Kanti is the Pali word for patience. And Kanti comes from the root calm. K-H-A-M, which is translated in two ways. It's translated as endurance, and it's translated as earth. So I'd like to think that uh, the earth has something to teach us about this parami, this quality of patience, patient endurance. Linda Hogan says, there's a way that nature speaks, that land speaks, Most of the time, we're simply not patient enough, not quiet enough to pay attention to the story. It's like when we slow down and come here, you might find that your experience of a tree, for example, is so much more dynamic and alive than it would be if you were just in your ordinary mind rushing by all of the trees. And so... I'm aware, as I, as I say this quote about nature speaking and the land speaking, that in many ways the planet's telling its story more loudly than ever, crying out. That's a topic of another talk, actually. But with this kind of sensitivity that may be here, some of what Rebecca talked about last night, that may be something that you sense or feel or that's with you on some level. I often when I teach on patience I often use the metaphor of the seasons. The, that um that we can't rush the seasons. There's no point trying to press summer into fall or fall into winter. Nature unfolds in its own way and it's just a special it's a specially apt metaphor this year actually. I was thinking oh yeah we can't rush and we can't rush fall into winter and it's really quite unseasonably warm here in very in November, so we really can't rush it because um, what's you know what's happening the the slow, gradual turn of the seasons is happening as a result of causes and conditions, vast network, vast web of causes and conditions. And our own practice, our inner life, is very much the same, only often we we don't trust or allow the seasons of our inner life the way that we will allow the unfoldment of the seasons externally. You know in a particular practice period, a particular walking or sitting, sometimes what happens is what you think will happen and sometimes what happens is entirely different. <laughs> what you think will happen. It might be that what you had for lunch is affecting things or how your body feels or just the unfoldment of your time being here in a dedicated way. All of you know on some level that we can't will our practice to be what we think it should be. We can't, through our will, bend our practice into this perfect form. We actually get just tighter and tighter and more tangled up in in doing that because we can't push results to appear until the causes and conditions allow them. That's important. We cannot push results to appear until causes and conditions allow them. So, we need patience to do this practice. We need patience to even deal with the presence of impatience, huh? It takes a great deal of patience to become a Buddha. It takes a great deal of patience just to clear some of the dust from our eyes. Rebecca framed her talk last night on Sankara dukkha in terms of the paramis and patience, is one of the paramis. And Rebecca was speaking about the balance of gentleness and strength that is cultivated as we practice the paramis. The Dalai Lama says, if we truly wish to progress, there is no practice more important than patience. We cannot pretend to be practitioners without patience. It's actually that central. It's not a little side extra thing you might pay a little bit of attention to here and there. It's that central. And something I love about the teaching of the paramis is that the paramis are are a thread of understanding that unfolds over lifetimes there is just this larger view of what it means to be human that permeates these teachings and when we consider you know the totality of one human life or perhaps many human lives who knows you know 6 weeks or 3 months might begin to feel just a little more bearable given the eons that Rebecca spoke about last night So a Buddha is fully perfected, which means there's really a full embodiment and realization of each of these paramis in a Buddha. And as we embody these qualities like generosity and equanimity and metta and patience, you could think of it as embodying awakening before you're completely awakened. So paramis aren't just at the end of the road. We actually cultivate the paramis every step of the way and being here, practicing vipassana, practicing insight, meditation, the cultivation of paramis goes, goes hand in hand with the unfolding of insight. The more my own practice deepens, the more I come to appreciate that awakening is, it's a, it's a long haul deal. If you are wanting to uh, be here and do something more than collect fancy meditation experiences, if you really want to allow this practice to impact how you show up in the world, a kind of endurance and understanding of contentment, the true source of contentment is required. It's like a peach that ripens. And peaches don't freak out. This is a fruit. I know you're not a bunch of peaches exactly, but um <laughs> 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 um you know peaches don't freak out cuz they're not sweet enough yet. You know they just know it's like it takes time. Time of the sun shining. It takes water. From the process unfolding. And the ripening doesn't happen like that most of the time. It happens over days and weeks and months and more. So one way to understand the quality of patience is to consider what's at work when patience is not present. When patience is not present, you know how you feel, don't you? Bristly, speedy maybe, in contention with, or identified. There may be agitation or anger. There's that sense of really not wanting what's here right now, pressing against. Some degree of reactivity is present when patience isn't. I was considering what's you know what's the opposite of impatience and we can say the opposite of impatience is patience but really it's contentment when when impatience is not in the mind there's not a pressing forward there's not this big message that things need to hurry up and be otherwise what's available is a measure of contentment whether or not what's happening is pleasant whether or not we like it so that's why I'm talking about this and sometimes Talking about patience, it can start to feel like, oh, endure, endure, endure. Who wants to hear about that? But I'm talking about patience as it relates to your deepest happiness. Sometimes we think of patience as one thing. We think of it as waiting. Have you ever found that? Being patient means I'm waiting until I get what I want. I'm going to be patient with this pain so that it goes away. Thank you very much. I'm going to be patient standing in the lunch line. And I hope that line goes fast. It's so much more than waiting. This practice of patience is so much more than waiting. And on a retreat like this, we, there is no waiting. There is standing meditation. <laughs> There's watching the mind. But waiting isn't actually part of what happens as you're sitting in the chair. I see, I almost said it. <laughs> as you're sitting in the chair before your, the door to your interview teacher's room opens up. So patience, it's not about waiting, but it's this practice of learning to soften learning to relax in the middle of tension. This is part of why in the Dhammapada, patience is spoken about as being the supreme austerity. Because cultivating this parami means being willing to not indulge, really, the chain of reactivity, to actually come face to face with whatever way an experience of something unpleasant is manifesting for you in the body, in the stories in the mind. And life asks this of us, doesn't it? We can talk about patience and the little things like lunch or what happens here during the days, but there's big things in life That teach us patience if we're fortunate enough. If you've lived with a chronic illness or really been injured or limited in your life in terms of your body, you have a choice to suffer or to cultivate more more patience. Difficult relationships. So many things in our own lives. So practicing with these little things on retreat teaches us it gives us uh, more capacity to have a deeper well of endurance and of kindness when life throws the big the big curveballs our way in the commentaries it's said that the characteristic of patience is acceptance that its function is to endure what is desirable and what is undesirable. That its uh, manifestation is non-opposition. And that its proximate cause is seeing things, really seeing things as they really are. So I'm talking about patience as a concept and what I'm really interested in is what your relationship to it is as, a, as an experience, as a practice, what would need to be put down, for example, to open to the possibility of patience. What would, what would need to be felt or known or connected with to open to the possibility of acceptance and seeing things as they are, as they really are. the dominant culture in this country is in one mad dash all the time. <laughs> the dominant culture is in a hurry. So there's a way, I think Bonnie talked about this, when we work with um, patients, for example, you know, we have, really have to appreciate it. it's, it's It's this, for many of us, maybe all of us, I don't know, it's this larger cultural conditioning. There's a, there's a book out called The Hurried Child it's good there's a book about that. We need to have a book about that. But it really speaks about how much children are rushed to mimic adult sophistication and the real stress this puts on little ones and the kind of anxiety that comes. And um, some of us have felt rushed from the moment we were born. I used to joke that my name was not Aaron Treat but Aaron Hurry because it was said so much growing up. And even when you watch children, oftentimes there's a sense of measuring um, success by how quickly things happen. This idea that, you know, it's better to be able to do things early. How soon did your kid walk? How soon did your kid talk? You know, how soon did your child start to um, be able to read? And when we. live our early lives in this kind of hurried way, we're robbed from some of our natural development. In an environment of hurry, it's difficult to really have a full capacity for something like wonder. To have a full capacity for creativity. A full capacity for letting the body relax and take up space in all sorts of different ways. And that being said, uh, not everybody grows up in a hurried culture. Sometimes it's, there's a culture of neglect. And I think about the Brahma-viharas each have a near and a far enemy. And the near enemy of impatience might be something like neglect, where we say, oh, I'm being patient, but really there's a kind of not acknowledging, there's a kind of avoiding um, not wanting to feel what's difficult. That's amazing. It's amazing. It's, the convenience is something probably we all appreciate. It's nice to be able to have coffee at the press of a button. It's nice to be able to get on a device and know the you know, closest Thai restaurant within two blocks or two miles and exactly what the menu is. There's a story about IMS getting a piece of mail way back in the early days sent to the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> Don't we wish we could offer that here? <laughs> One time, I was a uh, story about this kind of hurry and the, the culture of it. I was out in California. Brian and Bonnie and Jill and I have so spent years in a in a teacher training program that most people who teach at IMS and Spirit Rock go through. And the facility out in California where we have met isn't big enough to house all of us. So about five, uh, myself and four other women, we stay um, in a in a rental home about 25 minutes from where we meet in Woodacre for the training. And. I remember the first time that we had this training, and we we were all getting together, and it was our our last day to make the commute back to Woodacre where the training happened, and we were doing, you know, we we're planning on leaving at eight thirty to be there by nine, just like usual, because at nine you meditate, and Lord knows you got to be on time to meditate, and in um, about eight twenty we realized that we weren't really clear what needed to be done in this rental house for us to vacate, and I found this laminated piece of paper and it said you know you can just leave when you're ready to go it didn't look like there was much to do and I was there with my very dear friend Dara Williams some of you might know Dara she teaches here and Dara said I think we really need to clean this place up and I said no 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 it'll be just fine it's paid for it's going to be cleaned And we need to get there on time and Dara without a shred of aversion she just kind of started slowly and methodically picking things up And so we all started helping her, and the time was going on. It was about 8.35, and it was 8.40, and I was just wanting to get back to meditate on time. And I started, you know, pressing everybody along, telling them, we we, we really need to get going. We really need to get going. This place will be fine. Finally, maybe 8.45, we all got in the car, and I sat down, and my heart just sunk. I just realized that I had been really imposing my way on the whole group and I realized that I was suffering and I said Dara was sitting in the front next to me and I said I said I'm so sorry I'm so sorry I was rushing all of you you know it's okay to be 15 minutes late you know it'll be just fine and Dara again not a shred of aversion pure kindness she looked at me and she said that's okay Erin you've just got white girl timing what I didn't mention is Dara's an African American woman. That's okay, Erin. You've just got white girl timing. I was so busted. <laughs> I was so busted. But it was really this example for me of just how deep my own conditioning toward rushing was, in that I thought it was right. I thought it was the right way to go. And these other women had something different in mind. So it's all an overlay. You know, it's all an overlay our our experience of, of time. And on retreat, you might find yourself pressing forward, rushing in the moments here. Anybody notice during your yogi job? Rushing to get done with it? Some years ago when I sat part two. I had the job of vacuuming the back steps that went down to the old gym. And at the time, I was having some issues with the joints in my hands and my shoulder. And it hurt just a little bit. It wasn't awful, but it hurt just a little bit to vacuum the stairs and the you know the borders on the walls. And it was unpleasant, so I, j- I just wanted to get over it as quickly as I could. And I began to see that the hardest part of my whole day was this vacuuming because I was... Not wanting to be with the mild experience of something unpleasant in my body. And I came to see that it was that the whole experience it was much more easeful, much more relaxed when I actually slowed down. The vacuuming might have taken a minute or two minutes more. When I slowed down, it really wasn't that much of a difference. But there wasn't so much the added um, contraction. And we were just talking about this in the, in the dining room before this talk about really noticing the tendency to rush and what a powerful practice it can be when we really notice how many times a day the body and mind lean forward into revving things up. You could take this on as a practice to support the continuity. Just notice how many times are you rushing can begin to notice how it feels in the body, even when it comes up just a little bit. I know for me, it's like my arms and my shoulders, my hands come up a little bit, and the mind starts going a little more quickly. When you notice it, just be aware and settle. Sink into what's happening now. Sink into what you're seeing or hearing. The next in-breath. When that was happening, I was vacuuming. I went in and said to Joseph, well, I'm really wanting to practice mindfully rushing. And he said, there's no such thing as, you can't mindfully rush. You can mindfully move quickly. There's no mindful rushing. So, there's just this way that we deepen our wiring can equate staying productive On to the next thing with staying alive, with surviving. This is a little piece by Amy Krauss Rosenthal that was in the New York Times quite some time ago called Sweet Nothing. How have you been? Busy. How's work? Busy. How's your week? Good, busy. You name the question, busy's the answer. Yes, yes, I know. We're all terribly busy doing terribly important things. But I think more often than not, busy is simply the most acceptable knee-jerk response. Certainly there are more interesting, original, and accurate ways to answer the question. How are you? I'm hungry for a burrito. I'm envious of my best friend frustrated by everything that's broken in my house. I'm itchy. Yet busy stands alone as the easiest way of summarizing all that you do and all that you are. I am busy is the short way of implying my time is filled, my phone doesn't stop ringing, and you should think well of me. Have people always been this busy? Do cave people think they were busy too? This week is crazy. I've got about 10 caves to to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? (laughs) I have a hunch that there's a direct correlation between the advent of coffee bars and the increase in busyness. Look at us. We're all pros now, at hailing cabs, making Xeroxes, carpooling, performing surgery with a to go cup in hand. We're skittering around like hyperactive gerbils, high not just on caffeine but on caffeine's luscious byproduct, product productivity, ah, the joy of accomplishing, crossing off. As kids, our stock answer to most every question, like what did you do at school today or what's new, was nothing. In our country's history, there have been exactly seven kids who responded with a statement other than nothing. (laughs) Then somewhere on the way to adulthood, we each took a 180 degree turn. We cashed in our nothing for busy. She says, I'm starting to think that like youth, the word nothing is wasted on the young. Maybe we should try reintroducing it into our grown-up vernacular. Nothing. We say it a few times and I can feel myself becoming more quiet, decaffeinated, zen-ish. Nothing. (laughs) Now I'm picturing emptiness, a white blanket, a couple ducks gliding on a still pond, nothing, nothing. How did we get so far away from it? I don't think this person's actually sat a three-month retreat. (laughs) 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 But she has a good point. So patience, just a comment about patience and the the concept of time. Time is a concept that we make up in our conceptual minds. Intuitive awareness doesn't care about time. But a well-developed patience has the sense of having all the time in the world to rest in an experience. It relaxes the edge of time, the perception of how we hold time. The feeling of time is a measure, really, of what's going on in the nervous system. So when the system is speedy, there's never going to feel like there's enough time. Things won't be moving quickly enough. And we measure things now, not just in years or months or days, but nanoseconds, milliseconds. It's remarkable. So classically, patience is taught as having three components, gentle forbearance, endurance of hardship, and patience under insult. I'd like to share with you a few words about a young woman who to me is an exemplar of how she has had gentle forbearance, great endurance endurance of hardship, and really graceful patient under insult, more than insult, bodily harm, Malala. You guys know Malala Yousafzai. I've been reading her autobiography, and I'm not all the way through it, but I am so inspired. Uh, many of you know she... Uh, um, is an activist. She's a Pakistani woman. She's an activist for female education, and she's the youngest ever Nobel Prize winner. And her picture is one that many of us have seen ever since she uh, was shot by the Taliban and was um, flown, I believe she was flown out of the country, and um, went through extensive rehabilitation and now is doing such incredible work in our world. This is a few, a few of her words from her speech to the United Nations General Assembly. This was given when she was 17. Talk about parami. She's got some parami. She's been around the block some. <laughs> she says, dear friends, on the 9th of October, 2012, the Taliban shot me on the left side of my forehead. They shot my friends too. They thought that the bullets would silence us, but they failed. And then out of that silence came thousands of voices. The terrorists thought that they would change our aims and stop our ambitions, but nothing changed in my life except this. Weakness, fear, and hopelessness died. Strength, power, and courage was born. I am the same Malala. My ambitions are the same. My hopes are the same. My dreams are the same. So she's saying this to the whole UN, just after going through, you know, just something that is almost unimaginable. She goes on to say, Dear sisters and brothers, I'm not against anyone. Neither am I here to speak in terms of personal revenge against the Taliban or any other terrorist group. I'm here to speak for the right of education of every child. I want education for the sons and the daughters of all the extremists, especially the Taliban. I do not even hate the Taliban, the Talib who shot me. Even if there is a gun in my hand and he stands in front of me, I would not shoot him. This is the compassion that I have learned from Muhammad, Jesus Christ, and Lord Buddha." And I don't think those are just words from her. I think that's actually her heart. I don't think there was somebody in the back just writing that and saying to her, you know, say this in front of the UN. I think that's actually the truth of her heart. Can you imagine the kind of patience it would take to endure what she has endured and come out with so little bitterness? Now she, uh, she marked her 18th birthday this year um, in Le- Lebanon opening up Uh, all-girls school near the Syrian border, which is providing secondary education completely paid for to more than 200 Syrian girls. You know, so she's been through this incredible hardship and really used it as a way of cultivating not just patience, but many of the other paramis. They all go together, you know, she's incredibly, um, incredible determination and generosity and equanimity. So to, to actually practice a kind of um, determination, we need patience, patience and determination, patience and resolve really go together. It took a lot of patience for her to not let bitterness get the most of her to uh, see the journey through because this is something that she cared about so deeply. So if you're struggling, if you're struggling in your time here, it's is really, it, the struggle can become, does become, it's not an obstacle to developing the paramis. It's not, oh, I'm gonna get patient when this is done and over. It, we actually wake up through the obstacles. Um, it becomes, becomes our practice. So, to develop patience, bearing dukkha is part of it. We will not develop patience without the conscious bearing of dukkha, the conscious acceptance of truth. And obviously this may not be some huge social movement right now, but just being present in a kind way with the storms of aversion and doubt, with the storms of what comes up, in the process of purification, in the process of becoming more present with the heart-mind. This practice of putting the sword and shield down, not being at war with ourselves, with our experience, because as you know, reality, reality always wins. one, <laughs> in his in his wonderful way he says sometimes a lot of silly and foolish things come up nothing really bad or terribly evil or disgusting but foolish irrational things maybe we like to think of ourselves as being very serious and sincere practical and sensible but sometimes the thoughts and feelings in our minds are stupid and useless we'd like to go out and help the third world build latrines in Ethiopia, do something useful. So sitting in meditation with rubbish coming up seems to be a waste of time. But I reckon that the ability to sit with the rubbish is the sign of an advanced student. It takes a long time for people to just let the rubbish come up like that. Normally you start thinking of all the important things you could be doing. I shouldn't just be sitting here. There are so many things I have to do first, so many important things. But how much of your life is just spent running about doing terribly important things, trying to keep the world going, putting everything in order because you just can't face the rubbish that would come up if you weren't running around? What we are doing here is such important, noble work. The world is still going on out there. Believe me, the world is still going on out there. What we are doing here is um, such important work. Brian spoke in his beautiful talk about conditionality and dependent origination. A process of things as they have come to be that nothing is happening in isolation. Conditions are such this arises and this unfoldment is lawful. There'll be another talk on karma. But we know that these seeds ripen according to their nature. And even if we know that cognitively, you know, there are there are impulses. We want what we want when we want it. And as Rebecca talked about, we have senses, so much contact in the human experience, in the process of bearing the Sankara dukkha. I'm going to share a little bit more about the teaching that unfolded for me in my experience being with my mother in her dying process. I shared about some of the hindrances, and I shared about the experience of what happened with her body dying, The whole experience for me was really one of cultivating um, patience, because it basically came down to cultivating patience or suffering more. And one aspect of the experience that was was really difficult for me, I shared with you just the, the tenderness and the vulnerability of being with my mother in the dying process, that part was beautiful. But I come from a complicated family And the family dynamics were really challenging. Um, There were decisions being made about her care that I didn't agree with, and that I didn't think were exactly um, what she wanted. And I, I had such impulses to make a fuss so that things would go otherwise to try and make them go otherwise. But the truth is that what was unfolding, most of what I shared with you in the last talk, was already put into motion. It was put into motion before she was in the hospital bed downstairs. It was put into motion. And um, trying to make things go my way would have been futile. It would have created more conflict in already difficult situation. And in the process, my mother wanted three people with her. She wanted her husband with her, and myself, and my dear sister. And she didn't write much of anything down. And you can imagine how it is to get three people from three very different walks of life into a room and be making these kinds of decisions together. It was bumpy in certain ways. And um, there was a quality of perseverance, not so much in the experience with my mother, but just in the dynamics that surrounded that. My mother uh, went, gosh, she probably, she went probably 10 or 12 days without water. It's a really long time for somebody to go without water. So the process kept going on longer and longer and longer than we had thought it would. The processes that often occur in the last hours or days of life for my mom were occurring for well over a week, which doesn't sound like a very long time, but it felt like a really long time. And there were times when I thought, okay, this is my, this is my rock bottom. I'm just, I, it, this can't get harder. It really can't. <laughs> And it did. (laughs) And sometimes that would happen over and over again. So there was a sense of thinking, ah, you know, I I can't bear this. I really can't. But actually I could. It was this difference between bearing the suffering for suffering's sake or bearing suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And there was one point when I thought about leaving and I called a friend, a good Dharma friend, and I said, I don't know. Maybe I should get out of here. This, this part with the family is really hard. My friend said, really, Erin? Of course she was right. Of course she was right. And um, the whole experience for me was this sense of being in a, in a kind of a crucible. You know what a crucible is? Like a metal or ceramic container that holds substances that can be mixed together and melted. And in the process of all of these different substances heating up and cooking together, it's like a kind of alchemy. Something new is, is produced. So there is a sense of just being in it and cooking. And what ended up emerging was a lot of what I have shared with you, which has been um, <laughs> patience, love, um, understanding, deeper understanding of impermanence, being on retreat, is kind of like being in a crucible in a certain sense. You're here, you're practicing, you're cooking. <laughs> you may not know just how much you're cooking. We see it though. We see it, we talk about it. The, um, the beauty that is unfolding in your practices, you might not know it sometimes when it's hard, but uh, we see it. So the process of being with the family and the, the time It ended up taking um, the kind of patient endurance that ended up being what the practice was served me in seeing where I was attached over and over and over again. I saw places I was attached where I didn't know it was possible to be attached. So in practicing patience, it is a practice of seeing where are we attached Where are we holding on? Is it possible to be aware, kindly, right here? Is it possible to let go into more freedom because this path truly is not one of acquisition? So patient endurance can have um, the sense of the suffering that is noble. The first noble truth, the noble truth of suffering. a suffering that happened in that system for me to a certain degree, ended up you know, serving my mother and very much serving my own path of awakening. And one of the greatest um, challenges is sometimes to allow the practice to unfold in a way that's natural, in a way that's really natural for you. And one of the greatest gifts you can give yourself on retreat. And along the path is to trust your own unfolding, to trust that a seed ripens according to its nature. You are doing such wholesome work here. Every heart in this room is pointed in the right direction, is pointed in a a wholesome direction. And you are all so in it right now. You know, it's almost impossible to assess the value of a retreat in the middle of it. I've often gotten out of retreats where I thought not that much happened. And it's like, wow, I'm seeing with new eyes and I never would have known in the middle of the retreat. So too, as Kamala Masters says, to not not press your petals to open. This is from the book Zorba the Greek, by an uh, author from Crete, Nikos Kazanskakis, pardon me. <laughs> Let's see if you can relate to your own practice here. He writes, I remember one morning when I discovered a cocoon in the back of a tree, just as a butterfly was making a hole in its case and preparing to come out. I waited a while, but it was too long appearing and I was impatient. I bent over it and breathed on it to warm it. I warmed it as quickly as I could, and the miracle began to happen before my eyes, faster than life. The case opened. The butterfly started slowly crawling out, and I shall never forget my horror when I saw how its wings were folded back and crumpled. The wretched butterfly tried with its whole trembling body to unfold them, Bending over it, I tried to help it with my breath in vain. It needed to be hatched out patiently, and the unfolding of the wings should be a gradual process in the sun. Now it was too late. My breath had forced the butterfly to appear all crumpled before its time. It struggled desperately and, a few seconds later, died in the palm of my hand. So we we can do that. (laughs) Um, Thinking that, you know, judging ourselves and working harder in a way that brings tension is somehow going to um, further our practice. But allowing and continuity and the willingness to touch what is unpleasant just as it is with a kind heart with patience the willingness to entertain patience not as a should but as something that has everything to do with our own happiness and freedom is so important it really takes patience to bear just the disorientation that comes as the practice deepens we Think, oh, you know, I've got it. Okay, I figured out in the dhamma. This is how it is. Great, got it. You know, practice a little more. Oh, okay, I'm putting this down, letting this go. What's 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 it like now? What's my experience of of being now? There's disorientation in different times, and we we bear this discomfort for the dhamma, for our own um, awakening. And I just wanna underline what Rebecca mentioned this morning, if you feel yourself pressing forward a lot, to just really take a little time regularly to really remember what brought you here. Name it for yourself. Don't be vague, name it. Feel it in your body and let that be enough. Let that. Let yourself trust that as the guide. with a poem by David White called Winter Apple. I came across this poem a few days ago and I thought, this is perfect for this time of year in Berry. Some of you probably picked a lot of apples. Those of you who arrived in September, picked them, we've been eating them. The kitchen has made such tasty food with those apples. But if you imagine, there's probably... A lot of apples still left on trees that are out of the sight of human eyes. So imagine those apples. Winter apple. Let the apple ripen on the branch beyond your need to take it down. Let the coolness of autumn and the breathing blowing wind test its adherence to endurance. Let the others fall. Wait longer than you would. Go against yourself. Find the pale nobility of quiet that ripening demands. Let winter come and the first frost threaten. And then wake one morning to see the breath of winter has haloed its redness with light. So that a full two months after you should have taken the apple down, you hold it in your closed hand at last and bite into the cool sweetness spread evenly through every single atom of a pale and yielding structure so that you taste on that cold gray day not only the after reward of a patience remembered, not only the summer sunlight of a postponed perfection, but the sweet. Inward stillness of the weight itself. So we'll sit for a moment.